Well, good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Programme. And we're here, here in full force this afternoon. There's not only me, Jean and Dale and Oliver, but there's Maddie and Sol as well. And we've got a pretty full programme. We've got our press release, which is 885. And uh, that's got a lot of very interesting material in it. But we thought today that we would do quite a bit on teachers and we're going to be very positive rather than at the end, at the very beginning. And we're going to ask Maddie to tell us about a great state school. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State State schools. schools School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this great state school is Westall Secondary College out there at Springvale. Uh, We're doing this this week because a very good friend, she didn't go there, but all her siblings went there, was telling us about it during the week. But over to you, Maddie. Thank you so much, Jean. I am thrilled to tell everybody about the Westall Secondary College in Springvale. It is, it's a great school. All right, so we were told about this school, as Jean said, by an ex-pupil, a Vietnamese lady who came here on a boat when she was 18. She was um, with her parents and four younger siblings, and she was unfortunately too old to attend school and had to work hard with her mother when the father died. And she did. Helping to read and educate her siblings, they all attended Westall Public Secondary College and did remarkably well. She could not speak highly enough of this school, telling us about all the students who had worked hard and done so well because of the opportunities they received, but which she was too old to obtain. So we looked it up. Westall has a school ICSIA value, which is the indication of community social economic advantage of 962. And that is well below the average of a thousand. It has only 7% of its students from the upper quartile of advantage and 48% in the lowest 50%. 89% of its students have a language background other than English. And there are 1% of its students who are indigenous. Yet the fees, charges, and parent and private source contributions to this school are $1,629,052, which is more than 13.63% of the total income of $11 million or $20,000 per pupil. It would seem that the community that sends its children to this school value education and give well beyond their means to assist its running their NAPLAN results are more than creditable. The government capital expenditure of the school, however, is derisory. In 2019, it was only $168,381. Pity the teachers and principal dealing with buildings which housed our friends' siblings more than 40 years ago. Yes, isn't that sad? He is at school doing so much good, and yet the governments are not spending on its infrastructure the way they should, where uh, other schools, private schools, that in fact haven't given nearly as much for the common good in this country, can have all the, the playing fields that they want and have um, well, one school, of course, has got a baronial library. But, um, yes, that was our great state school. And thank you to Lynn, my Vietnamese friend, our Vietnamese friend, who told us all about it. Now, we've got a um, a press release, and this press release deals with the private contributions to public education. So uh, I'll start off and then we'll get have a break and Oliver... Uh, and Maddie have got some more to say. This is it. 
public school parents pay approximately $752 per pupil around Australia or $1.8 billion a year for free public education. $1.8 billion a year, public school parents. The Lib Lab attempts to privatise education in Australia is nowhere more apparent than in the way the ideal of free education has been undermined in practice. Now, an academic called Anna Hogan, who's a senior lecturer at the Queensland University of Technology, estimates that $8 billion of private funding props up the private and public systems of Australia each year. If education is to be accessible to every Australian child, and it is for the common good, not the private good, then it should be free and in no way dependent upon private funding. It's to be expected that the private sector fees are substantial. They should be more substantial and they should go it alone. We shouldn't have to give them any money, we believe. But what is scandalous is the amount raised by public school parents for the provision, not only of basic classroom material, but even the maintenance and the refurbishment of infrastructure. As Anna Hogan notes, the significant sums flowing into state education from private income sources 1.8 billion for Australia's 2.5 million state school students in 2015, and of course that's going up, poses questions and challenges that have not been well researched. What is of greatest concern to the dogs, however, is that the basic tenant of free education in Australia is being undermined by our so-called democratic governments. By rewarding private fee-paying schools with ever greater public subsidies and depriving public schools of basic facilities, our governments are forcing public school parents into raising private, often philanthropic, funds for our public sector. But public schools are not charities. They are a child's right. Nor are they tax collectors propping up perceived deficits in government school funding. Nor should they be asked to advertise corporate funders on their, their, their fences and notice boards or allowing corporate visitors like the Commonwealth Bank to exploit young children and their families. Moreover, growing dependence upon private funding and its raise, raising in public schools is fueling greater inequities, not only between the private and the public sector, but within the public sector itself. Some schools in uh, fairly affluent areas can raise a lot more than schools in disadvantaged areas. Although, as we can see at West Hall, uh, they certainly put their money where their mouth is out in that disadvantaged area. Uh, now, we're going to hear what Anna Hogan herself had to say about her research at the University of Queensland in their newsletter uh, after this break. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. You're listening to The Dogs Program on 3CR and here is Oliver to tell you about the public schools, which are leaning on 1.8 billion, billion, not million, 1.8 billion private income uh, at the moment, and probably more at the moment, because these are 2015 figures. But is this a good thing? Over to you, Oliver. Anyone who's slaved over a school sausage sizzle may not be surprised to learn that parents and friends raise an average $752 a year for every state school student in Australia. 
But University of Queensland education expert, Dr. Anna Hogan, says some important sociological questions are sizzling alongside all those sausages. Australian schools are using inventive fundraising methods, and it's important that governments, teachers, and parents have the information to consider the effects and implications of underwriting public education this way, Dr. Hogan said. The significant sums flowing into state education from private income sources, $1.8 billion for Australians 2.5 million state school students in 2015, poses questions and challenges that have not been well researched. The Australian Research Council agreed and has awarded Dr. Hogan $427,882 to investigate the issue in the next three years. The edu education expert said assumptions that public schools were free needed to be broken down. People are increasingly aware that parental fees and contributions as well as fundraising in public schools has become the norm to prop up perceived government funding deficits, Dr. Hogan said. We know from previous research that schools most successful at fundraising are those with established philanthropic relationships with their alumni and local businesses in their communities. Parental contributions, fees and charges tend to rise with a school's relative socioeconomic advantage, she said, meaning the distribution of those contributions across schools was uneven. It's intriguing that schools, other private other private income sources, donations, trading, asset sales and fundraisers do not follow the same socioeconomic trend, she said. It highlights a significant gap in our current knowledge about how Australian public schools develop, maintain and evaluate philanthropic relationships. The research will look at school governance and investigate the role of the private sector in public schools, as well as address broad concerns about systemic equity and fairness of government school funding. People were noticing corporate advertising on school notice boards, in newsletters, on classroom, classroom walls, and emblazoned on sports equipment. But Dr. Hogan said fundraising was mostly difficult and time consuming and relied on significant support from volunteers. Despite this, she said, some public schools raised up to $1 million a year. Hats off to all those supporters who raised such a significant sums in support of students learning all across Australia, Dr. Hogan said. They are buying computers, library books, teaching and learning resources, funding air conditioning and renovating schools to look more like their private school counterparts. One PNC president reported to, to Dr. Hogan that little bake sales and sausage sizzles were losing favor, but bunning sausage sizzles could raise around $3,000. That's a pretty good return on investment if you can recruit enough volunteers, the fundraiser said. But mostly we do online auctions, recruit business partners from the community and write countless grant applications. Truth is we don't do anything unless we make more than a thousand dollars and we're small fish. Well, isn't that extraordinary what we're doing to our parents? I know that I used to spend when my children were at school quite a number of hours just keeping the grounds clean every Sunday afternoon. And that was very time consuming, although it was very good for my figure and my health. And um, I have to say, I did enjoy it. But um, raising money is really a very, very difficult thing, especially when you live in a community that doesn't have too much of it. Well, the conversation had also some very interesting material. And Maddie's going to tell us about that. What are parents actually paying for school? That's a very good question, Jean. We found school incomes from private sources increase with the relative advantage of a school. Relative advantage is defined using ACARA's Index of Community Socio-Educational Socio Advantage, ICSIA. <clears throat> this scale is a proxy for socioeconomic status used by education sectors in Australia. ACARA calculates the ICSIA score for each school using factors such as students' parental education and occupation, the proportion of Indigenous students at the school, students with a language background other than English, and the school's geographical location. An ICSIA score above 1,000 indicates greater socioeconomic and educational advantage. An ICSIA score below 1,000 indicates greater disadvantage. In our analysis, we put schools into four categories. 
very disadvantaged, which, which means the Ixia score is 900 and less. Disadvantage, which means the Ixia score is from 901 to 1000. Advantaged, which means the Ixia score is from 1001 to 1100. And very advantaged, which means the Ixia score is more than 1100. Parents in very disadvantaged independent schools paid an average of $1,225 in 2015 per student. This increased to an average of $14,624,000 in a very advantaged independent school. Parent fees at the most advantaged government schools were $745 in 2015 per student. At the most disadvantaged government schools, parents paid around $299 per student, which means school fees are obviously on the rise. Private school fees are growing faster than inflation and are now one of the biggest financial outlays in the average Australian family. Only 50% of families with children attending private schools pay fees from their disposable incomes. The rest, according to market-based research by EdStart, increase their credit card debt, take out personal loans, redraw on their mortgage or borrow money, often from grandparents. Ah, yes, that's the bank bank parents that Trevor Fireball talks about that is never counted in uh, the the whole uh, area of education funding. Yes, the The bank of mum and dad. Yeah, the bank of mum and dad, yes. Yes. Yes, and according to the latest financial data from ACARA, fees have increased in some public schools since 2015 too. Using Metropolitan Brisbane schools as an example, McGregor State High um, has an Ixia score of 1,018, had a 90% increase in fees between 2015 and 2019, from $576 to $715 respectively. Browns Plains State High, which has an Ixia score of 963, had a 10% increase from $273 to $305. And Bray Park State High, which has an Ixia score of 989, had a 6% increase from 387 to 415. But many public school fees had less than a 2% increase and some, like Kelvin Grove State College, which has an Ixia score of 1,129, actually reduced their fees from 1,714 to 1,532 per student between 2015 and 2019. Other very advantaged public schools also reduced fees. A recent article in The Age showed families in Victoria spent a total of $400.1 million for the 2019 to 2020 financial year in public schools. The article said data from ACARA showed total parent payments to Victorian state schools have risen by $160 million since 2009. So what happened to free education? Yes, well, just think about this. This is very important. Um, but we'll have a bit of a break and Sorrel will ask the question, what happened to free education? Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMAR. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuwaya Mōbōhina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio. Your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. 
know you're listening to the dogs program <clears throat> and we've been interesting been listening to some very interesting information about how much state school parents in Australia and in Victoria are spending on so-called free education which we pay taxes for actually we pay double taxes because we pay taxes for our public schools and now we pay taxes to keep uh, an inefficient and ineffective class-based private school system going. So public school parents are really very, very much put upon. So what happened to free education? Because in law, state schools are still supposed to be free. Sorrel, over to you. What happened to free education? Thank you, Jean. So what did happen to free education? Fees in public schools are often referred to as voluntary contributions. This is because government legislation prevents public schools attaching parental fees to student enrolments. But public schools sometimes use various strategies to promote fee payment. For instance, schools may exclude students from extracurricular activities and excursions if parents have not paid fees. This may compel parents to pay to avoid their child's embarrassment. But there are other ways parents contribute money to public schools. Bake scales, sorry, bake sales, fates, and democracy sausage sizzles have always been a cornerstone of public schooling. And like their private school counterparts, public schools are now investing in strategic fundraising with parents and alumni and sponsorship arrangements with businesses and philanthropists. In our study, we found very advantaged independent schools received the most funding from other income sources compared to all other independent schools. But in the public school sector, the very disadvantaged schools received the most from other income sources compared to other public schools. This was the same in the Catholic school sector, where the very disadvantaged schools received the most from other income sources. This may be because disadvantaged schools are receiving targeted philanthropy. For instance, Schools Plus, an intermediary organization that works to connect disadvantaged schools with donors through tax deductible giving programs. Since 2015, Schools Plus has directed $17.8 million to both public and private disadvantaged schools in Australia. Most of these donations come from the corporate sector, large trusts and foundations, and high net worth individuals. According to the Schools Plus 2020 Impact Report, most schools apply for funding to help improve student engagement and performance, while all disadvantaged schools with an ICSIA of less than 1,000 are eligible for Schools Plus funding. The process is competitive, meaning not all schools that need extra funding will receive it. Well, this is a very interesting grab bag, isn't it? We're now dependent upon corporate groups that consider themselves philanthropists for a little bit of money for our disadvantaged schools. Wouldn't it be better if they paid the taxes they should pay in the first place? Wouldn't it be better if our rich listers actually paid their tax instead of having tax havens and then coming back and saying, aren't we great philanthropists like Twiggy Forrest? At least he sees himself as a philanthropist, which is more than you can say for some other of the rich listers. I won't name any names. But the real problem here is that we've got an equity issue. Some disadvantaged schools might get some extra bits of money from the corporate sector, but not all do. And that's what Sorrell has just told us. And research from the United States and the United Kingdom cautions that an over-reliance on private income can lead to governments shirking responsibility for resourcing and supporting schools. And aren't we seeing that in spades in Australia? 
particularly with our state governments. We don't expect very much from the coalition in Canberra. We know that they are almost anti-public education anyway, but we do expect our state governments to come to the party, but instead they have withdrawn money from our government schools so that they're not going to reach the resource standard that's required in the next decade. So this is an ongoing issue of equity and the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And it is actually just not good enough because anybody who has studied their history knows that there are certain levels of inequality which lead to great instability in the society and an overriding sense of unfairness amongst more and more and more people. And while people in America, we're looking at America and thinking, oh, well, at least we've got Mr. Biden back in again, uh, people are forgetting that there are 70 million voters who are disaffected enough to vote for a Trump in that country. And they are amongst, amongst those people are the people who stood by and lost their homes while not one banker in 2008 went to jail. So levels of inequality, particularly in the education system, are a very dangerous thing. And uh, we are suggesting here at DOGS that we should return to free, secular, compulsory and universal education, which does not depend upon private funding, but which is taxpayer funded and which is the only system which is taxpayer funded. So that's enough for the moment on our press release. We'll have a bit of a break. And then we've got some very interesting material on the teachers. Councils around the country will put on just Disability Day events and quite a few of them will not include people of colour, First Nations people and black people. So I think it's pretty cool mm -hmm. that everyone you'll hear on air today will be a person of colour and the majority of them will be people with disabilities as well. I think when we were preparing for this show and for this day, we wanted to talk about how we could explain the concept of power from the margins and why it is that we've chosen to focus on black people, indigenous people and people of colour. And I think, you know, in one word, it's intersectionality. It's the fact that people experience forms of oppression, different forms of oppression at the same time. And most people don't realise that you can't have racial justice without disability justice and vice versa. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Yes, well, um, we've got another good news story here. A good news teacher's story. There's a group of teachers in Australia who teach English as a second language to newcomers to this country whose first language is not English. And they have been rather badly exploited by private colleges and others, but they've recently had a little bit of a win. So over to Dale, who will tell you about this very interesting story. Thank you, Jean. Yes, it's a little bit of a win, but uh, it's quite incredible to think they had to fight so hard just to get this little bit of a win. So this is an article by Adam Carey that was in The Age on the 28th of March this year titled No Leave, No Sick Pay, English Teachers Fight Rampant Exploitation. A group of English language teachers has won almost $200,000 in unpaid wages after taking on their college's decision to slash their pay in response to Melbourne's lockdown. Staff at the Australian National College of Education in Melbourne's CBD were also misclassified as casuals, in some cases working for years on a series of short-term contracts without annual leave or sick pay. English, 
English teacher Brianna Curran successfully fought for thousands in back pay after being denied annual leave and being paid under the award. Their boss, who conceded in conciliation that he'd been underpaying his teachers, told the aides that he's now considering shutting down the school. It is the latest in a number of recent industrial disputes over underpayment in the troubled private English language teaching sector, which has been hit harder by Australia's border closure than any other part of the higher education industry. Enrolments in English, edu- in English language intensive courses for international students fell 33% last year, Commonwealth data shows, compared with a slump of 7.3% in the higher education sector overall. Some private colleges have closed their doors in response, while teaching staff in the heavily casualised sector have had to go to the Fair Work Commission to fight for unpaid wages. In the latest case, nine teachers in the Australian National College of Education, or ANCE, in Melbourne CBD have this month won a combined $194,000 in back pay after taking the school to the Commission. The matter was settled in conciliation, with the college agreeing to pay the teachers previously denied leave and redundancy payments. The teachers also had their pay cut from $45 an hour to $35 an hour after the college transferred from face-to-face to remote learning in March, in most cases pushing their pay below award rates. Jianming Chen the chief executive of the of ANCE declined to answer questions about the underpayment of his former teaching staff other than to say the matter had been settled but he said enrolments at the college had declined from the peak from a peak of about 150 before the pandemic hit to 18 students now putting its continued operation under a, a cloud i think the school should be shut down how can you keep it open with that number mr chen said He said teaching English to international students had become an unprofitable industry since COVID-19 hit. It's a loss-making business. It's not profitable at all. One of his former employees, Brianna Curran, said she and her colleagues at ANCE worked without management support to switch from face-to-face classes to remote learning when Melbourne went into lockdown. We paid for it out of our own pockets to get the online learning system in force and we did it. We did all the training and liaising ourselves, Ms Curran said. That was all off our own back because to lose our job at that time would have been absolutely crippling. Ms Curran received $12,907 in back pay following conciliation. Her colleague, former primary school teacher Selena Long, received $20,912. Ms Long said the teachers received no support from college management to switch to online learning, even paying for Google Meet subscriptions out of their own pocket. We were literally holding the business together without any help, she said. Weeks later, they received new contracts that cut their hourly pay rate. The teachers were supported in their fight for unpaid wages by the Independent Education Union. Deb James, James, the union's Victoria and Tasmanian branch president, said the English language sector had been hit especially hard in the pandemic, but that did not justify the rampant exploitation we've seen from some employers as they seek to pass all of their costs onto a vulnerable workforce. Under award pay rates, unpaid super, dodgy casual contracts and a denial of redundancy pay and other basic entitlements are simply not acceptable ways to treat employees or run a business, Ms James said. The union also supported staff at the Melbourne-based college languages across borders, helping them recover tens of thousands of dollars in unpaid super and leave after the school was closed down last year. And there was a couple of comments following that. News nitpicker had to say, oh, look, another employer treating their workers badly. How very 21st century Australian. Workers and employees, listen, go and join a union. I know they aren't popular anymore, but the level of employee exploitation is a direct 
correlation with union membership decline. You are not going to beat this problem on your own. That's why it's been dragging on for years. But I bet one or two million workers joining unions would get a remarkably quick change in attitudes. And then Saffron says, this entire sector has always treated teachers very badly. Over to you, Jean. Yes, well, of course, all education, whatever it is, and most particularly the teaching of the English language, should be a public good. It should be paid for. We shouldn't have this in the independent or the private sector at all. Uh, such a basic requirement for people coming to this country should be paid for by the taxpayers. But that shows you, even though it was the independent school union, all power to their arm for these people. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world, and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Now, being a teacher is really a very demanding and very highly, highly professional and a skillful job. And we're reminded of this in a very interesting article that SOS Australia, Save Our Schools Australia, printed on February the 20th uh, on their website. The article was reprinted from Larry Cuban's blog on school reform and classroom practice. Now, Larry Cuban is the Professor Emeritus of Education at Stanford University. And what Sol is going to read to you is an abridged version of a speech to graduates and their families back in June 2001. But SOS and other people think that it is very opposite uh, for 2021, particularly for those people, young people, who are thinking about going into teaching. Over to you, Sol. Thank you, Jean. So this is What It Means to Be a Teacher by Larry Cuban. I have thought a lot about the past 46 years I have spent in education. I have taught in urban high schools and Stanford for many years, in addition to being an administrator. It is teaching, not administration or scholarship, however, that has defined me as an adult. Teaching has permitted to me to be a lover of ideas, a performer, a lifelong learner, a historian, a writer, and a friend to former students and colleagues. For these reasons, and because at this moment in our nation's history, teachers have moved to the top of the nation's school reform agenda, I want to comment today on both the exhilarating and troubling aspects of teaching. Two basic reasons are behind this strong push for higher quality in teachers. Policymakers and teachers edu and teacher educators believe that when teachers understand deeply their subjects and possess a full repertoire of teaching skills, students will learn more, 
do better on tests, and eventually get good jobs. And second, higher teacher standards will move the occupation much closer to professional status. And of course, who could argue against teachers acquiring more expertise in the subject and displaying polished skills to help children learn more? Who would argue against teaching becoming a full-fledged profession? Certainly I don't. Yet in all honesty, what troubles me is the cramped image of teaching that has emerged from these reforms. The constricted picture is one where the teacher is a technically competent supplier of information and skills. It is an incomplete image of teaching. Missing in all of the talk and mandates aimed at improving teacher quality are the more traditional moral obligations of teaching the young be they preschoolers or graduate students. I need to be clear on this point. Not for one second do I minimize the importance of raising the low status of teachers and getting students to do better on tests, go to college, acquire credentials and secure good jobs. Nonetheless, I must point out that these reasons for improving the quality of teaching are far different than the moral purposes that have guided the practice of teaching for centuries. Let me be more specific about what I mean by traditions of teaching imposing moral obligations upon the teacher. Teaching obliges those who teach kindergartners, sixth graders, molecular biology, auto mechanics or art to give sustained intellectual and moral attention to students' learning and growth. Intellectual attentiveness means concentrating on what students know, feel, and think about the content and the skills to be learned, the technical side of teaching, but then go on to deepen their understanding of the world and their capacity to continue learning. Moral attentiveness means to concentrate on helping students grow as persons in grace and sensibility becoming more rather than less thoughtful about ideas, becoming more rather than less respectful of others' views, and becoming more rather than less responsible for reducing social injustice. Questions of what is fair, right, and just arise constantly in classrooms. Students learn moral sensibilities from how their teachers answer those questions. Teacher and author Frank McCourt realized the moral implications of teaching. As a first-time New York City teacher in the mid-1950s, he was uncertain about what kind of teacher he should be. He recalled his thoughts after his first day of teaching. Should I be Robert Denat in Goodbye, Mr. Chips? Or Glenn Ford in The Blackboard Jungle? Should I swagger into the classroom like James Cagney? or march in like an Irish schoolmaster with a stick, a strap, and a roar. If a student sends a paper aeroplane zooming at me, should I shove my face into his and tell him, try that one more time, kid, and you're in trouble? What am I to do with the ones looking out the window calling calling to friends across the yard? If they're like some of the students in the blackboard jungle, they'll be tough and they'll ignore me and the rest of the class will despise me. Teaching is a way of defining yourself as a person, a moral actor, and McCourt's struggles go well beyond how much of his subject and what skills he displayed. He knew, as we do today, that important as technical expertise is, our character as human beings and how we teach becomes what we teach. Just like Frank McCourt, Professors also display their character and moral virtues when they teach. In universities, as in public schools, the act of teaching, too often defined as knowing one's discipline, has been divorced from who one is as a human being. To teach is to convey unveiled enthusiasm for ideas, as it is about the details of the lecture. Too often, teaching has been stripped of its moral dimensions and made into a series of technical moves that can be swiftly learnt and put into practice. If a professor, for example, only calls on the brightest, most verbal students in the class, snipes at students' answers that call into question the professor's statements, and provides few comments on students' written work, students learn about fairness, 
independent inquiry, and the moral character of their professor. Teaching then, whether in graduate schools or kindergartens, in elite universities or slum schools, binds us all together. In teaching, we display our views of knowledge and learning. We advertise our ideas, how we reason, and how we struggle with moral choices, whether we intend to or not. To teach is to enlist in a technical, morally-based vocation, not an occupation, and certainly not just a job. Technical competence, as important as it is in teaching, is insufficient to make a whole teacher or a complete student. It fails to capture the fundamental moral obligations of teaching the young, teaching young and old in all of its splendid moral and technical triumphs and disappointments has taught me and many others to approach life and the classroom with humility. Well, isn't that an interesting article? Thank you very much, Sorrel. Those of us who have been teachers can perhaps reflect on that. I know that I learned a great deal from a lot of my students, particularly those in the matriculation college classes. But um, we'll have a bit of a break now and then we'll come back uh, and we've got just one more thing uh, from the New South Wales Teachers Federation because the teachers have been vindicated and validated in New South Wales.
Well, listeners, you're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR. We're here every week, as you well know. And um, this week we've been concentrating on parents and teachers. And there's just one more very interesting article written by um, Angelo Gavrilatis, who's well known to most teachers around Australia. He is the New South Wales Teachers' Federation president. And Angelo has written an article which is on their website entitled Teachers Vindicated and Validated. And Oliver's going to tell you about it. Over to you, Oliver. Thank you, Jean. Angelo writes, it was a privilege on behalf of all Federation members to be presented with the final report of the Valuing the Teaching Profession Inquiry by its chair, the Hon Dr. Jeff Gallup. It was an historic moment concluding a year-long independent inquiry into the change, nature, and value of teachers' and principals' work. The teaching service has been vindicated and validated by this thorough examination of its work, its complexity, the increased demands on teachers' time that detracts from teaching and learning, and the value and status of the profession in terms of remuneration. What the Gallup report signaled was the need for a reset in compelling and irrefutable language of the chronic, unacceptable underfunding of our profession and public education. The report makes it clear that such a reset is well overdue, and 2021 is the year in which we must organise, campaign, and win for the immediate and future well-being of the teaching service and our students. The full resources of the union will be deployed to ensure that our members receive the salaries and status they deserve, and our schools and colleges have the staffing that every public school student needs. The campaign to deliver such significant improvements, as well as better working conditions for teachers and principals, as part of our ongoing demands for additional permanent teaching positions in every school to increase non-face-to-face teaching time, culminates this year in the Term 4 Schools Award negotiations. A renewed and sustained commitment to recruitment, engagement and capacity building in every worksite is vital to grow the union, union power necessary to win this campaign for more relief from face-to-face teaching, better wages, and improved staffing structures. The implementation of our plan to win is well underway. Myself, Dr. Gallup, along with senior officers, Henry Rajendra and Amber Flom, have been traveling the state over the past month, meeting members, parents, and community members at a town hall style meetings to increase awareness of our campaign. The response from these communities has been tremendous and has been reflected in the overwhelming media interest in the report from local newspaper, radio, and television outlets. Key to recruitment and engagement is meaningful union presence in every workplace, every day. Our schools and colleges remain the union's most fundamental and effective sites of industrial and political organization. The strength and success of Federation is determined by the extent to which we're able to develop workplace union leadership, increase union membership, density, and engage members in meaningful collective action. The recruitment of new and potential members is critical, and this will be supported by Federation resources to assist the growth of our membership and density. The union's communications team will lead strategic communication over the year, producing material that will support school-based campaigning and build connections with parents and the broader community. It is vital that there is a deepening of the community's recognition of what the teaching service knows and understands, that teachers' working conditions are students' learning conditions. At this time of effective salary decreases, underlined by the disgraceful 0.3% cap the New South Wales government imposed on awards, the need for a breakthrough in salaries could not be more significant. The continued suppression of wages through government-imposed cuts will be to the ongoing detriment of public education, working people, and the economy as a whole. As unionists, we must and will play our part in fighting for a more just and equitable society. Back to you, Jane. Yes, well, that's very interesting, isn't it? People forget that teachers are part of the private uh, funding of public schools. I don't know how many teachers haven't put in their own money for basic things for their students in their classroom. I don't know how many uh, teachers have not 
forked out a little bit of money for a child that's come to school hungry. Those are the figures that weren't included in that 1.8 billion private funding of public education that we dealt with in the earlier part of this program. But um, I think too, as we think back on 2020 and 21, we will realise that the people who got us through this pandemic were the health workers and the teachers, and they were grossly undervalidated and underpaid. And uh, we, the ordinary people, are really very, very grateful to them. But uh, that's all we have time for this afternoon. And thank you very much for allowing us into your, your listening space on this Saturday afternoon. And if you want to find out more about us, go to our website at www.adox.info. But for now, it's bye from us. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.